1: Hi, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found on miamighostchronicles.com. Go to marlenepardo.com for information on new book releases. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms, and can also be listened to via Alexa, Sonas and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for scary storytelling, Nightshade Diary for classic horror and adventure stories, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests on the show. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, just visit Stranger Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com or find us on Blogspot. I want to thank you for being part of my audience. And I think you are all wonderful. The Ogre in the Attic The Chilling Story of Serial Killer Fritz Harman. On a beautiful spring day in May 1924, two children were wandering near Herrenhausen Castle on the banks of the Lean River, and they made a gruesome discovery. It was a human skull, later determined to belong to a male, Age 18 to 20. Despite knife wounds found on the skull, police were reluctant to believe it belonged to a murder victim. They wondered if it had been discarded by grave robbers or if medical students were playing a prank. And nearby Alfeld, there had been an outbreak of typhoid, and perhaps someone had disposed of the skull by throwing it into the river. Two weeks later, on May 29, a second skull was found close to where the first one was discovered. Again, this one belonged to a young male. Soon after, a sack containing human bones was found in a field by two boys. Murder victims vied to be the next to be discovered, and on June 13, on the banks of the Lean River, two more skulls were found. Again, they were young men, one as young as 11 to 13 years of age. One of the skulls had been scalped. Then many remembered the rumors as circulated for a year prior to the discovery about the large amount of children and teenagers reported missing in Hanover. The newspapers ran with the story and noted the unusually high number of young people reported missing from 1918 to 1924. Hanoverians decided to search the banks of the river and then several human bones were found. This effort was spurred by whispers that a werewolf or a man-eater lurked in the city after nightfall. The police then dammed and dragged a portion of the river that ran through the center of the city. This led to the discovery of another 500 bones and sections of bodies being recovered. Knife striations riddled many of the remains, and doctors confirmed that at least 22 human corpses were discarded into the river. The near bones showed they were dissected at the joints, and over 30% belonged to young males less than 20 years of age. The police did not have far to look, because the main suspect was already working for them as an informant. His name was Fritz Harmon. He was a homosexual who, since 1896, had been convicted of 15 offenses, including child molestation and sexual assault and battery of a minor had been a suspect in the 1918 disappearance of Friedel Roth and Hermann Koch, age 14. Two young undercover officers surveilled him, following him to Hanover Central Station, which he was known to frequent. They didn't have long to wait, when on the night of June 22, they saw him arguing with a young man, later identified as Carl Fromm, age 15. Hermann was so confident that police wouldn't detain him that he told the officers they should arrest the boy for traveling with forged documents. Fromm told police that Harman had repeatedly raped him for four days in his attic apartment, many times holding a knife to his throat. Instead, Harman was arrested and charged with sexual assault. Who was Frederick Fritz Harman? He was born on October 25, 1879, to Ollie Harman and Joanna N. Claudius, he was the youngest of six children. His mother married Ollie Harmon, a railroad worker, who was seven years her junior when she was forty-one years old. No doubt Ollie's real attraction was towards her substantial dowry. Ollie Harmon was known to be short-tempered, argumentative, and would turn out to be a notorious womanizer who contracted syphilis when he was older. Surprisingly. Fritz's parents remained married until Joanna died in April 1901. Fritz was a quiet child who socialized mostly with his siblings. He was very close to his mother, who spoiled him. She'd become an invalid after his birth. His behavior at school was good, but he was below average in his studies. When he was eight years old, he was molested by one of his teachers, an event he seldom spoke about. Fritz's older brother, the eldest Alfred became a factory foreman who never devolved into any deviant behavior and became a family man. In a foreshadowing of his brother's fate, the next brother, Wilhelm, was sentenced at an early age for sexual offenses. The other siblings, three sisters, married young and all three divorced. They were described as having compulsive and obsessive personalities. One of them, Frau Rudiger, died young during World War I, The next sister, Frau Erfurt, did not get on with Fritz, and the youngest, Emma, was the only one who maintained a relationship with him. Harmon grew into a trim, strong young man with an effeminate manner and a high-pitched voice. He left school when he was 15 years old and apprenticed as a locksmith, eventually enrolling in a military academy. He seemed suited to military life. But after five months of military service, he began to suffer moments of unconsciousness. This was initially diagnosed as anxiety neurosis, or possibly epilepsy. He left the academy and worked at his father's cigar factory. Fritz started his predatory behavior when he was 16 years old. He would lure young boys to secluded areas, usually cellars, and sexually abuse them. In July 1896, he was arrested, but he kept on molesting boys. Six months later, they sent him to a mental institution in Hildesheim. From there, he was sent to a Hanover hospital for evaluation, where he was diagnosed as incurably deranged and unfit to stand trial. On May 28, 1897, he was returned to the asylum, based on the psychologist's recommendation he should be confined indefinitely. Several months later, 18-year-old Fritz escaped with assistance from his mother, he fled to Zurich, Switzerland, where he lived with a relative of his mother. He gained employment as a handyman and stayed there for 16 months before returning to Hanover. The following year he met Erna Lowert, who soon became his fiance when she became pregnant. In October 1900, he joined the Number no. 10 Rifle Battalion to serve his compulsory military service. He developed a reputation as an excellent marksman and he recalled this time as the happiest of his life. A year after he joined, he suffered dizzy spells when exercising and was hospitalized for four months. Nine months later, he was discharged and deemed unsuitable for military service and work with a diagnosis of probable dementia praecox. He returned to Hanover and continued to live with his fiancée and work for his father. A year later, there was a violent fight between father and son and Ollie Harmon, unsuccessfully tried to sue his son, citing verbal death threats and blackmail. The nature of the blackmail involved a story that his father had once murdered a train driver. What the elder, Harmon, requested from the courts was that his son be returned to a mental institution. The charges were dropped for lack of evidence, however, Fritz was ordered to take a psychiatric examination. The doctor concluded he was a morally inferior man, but not mentally unstable. Perhaps feeling sorry for Fritz's fiancée, Erna, Ollie Harmon helped them open a fishmongery. In 1904, his fiancée, once again pregnant, ended the engagement. Harmon accused her of having an affair with a student. However, since the business was registered under her name, she simply ordered him to leave. With the last vestige of stability gone from his life, he spent the next ten years surviving as a petty thief and con artist. He would even steal from employers who gave him a legitimate job. He served a short prison sentence several times after being convicted of larceny, assault, and embezzlement. In a strange tale described that when employed as an invoice clerk, a female co-worker and him would rob tombstones and graves they carried on the thefts from 1905 to 1913. For the next dozen years, after being kicked out by his fiancée, Harmon spent years in jail serving short sentences. In 1913, after an arrest for burglary, police searched his home and found goods linking him to other burglaries. He was sentenced to five years. Due to World War I, there was a shortage of domestic manpower in Germany, and he was permitted to work on the grounds of manor houses during the day. He would return to prison in the evening. In April 1918, after his release he lived in Berlin and then returned to Hanover to live with one of his sisters. Afterward he rented a small apartment traffic and trafficked in stolen property and contraband from the Hanover Central Station. He flourished in this endeavor due to the poverty in the nation after their loss in World War I. He established ties with the criminal underworld and reverted to his behavior as a thief and smuggler. Not only did Harmon develop a small criminal enterprise, but he became an informer for the police, even though they knew of his criminal past and that he was a known homosexual, which was illegal and punishable in Germany at that time. Known as the Sodom of Germany, Hanover received damaged veterans from the war, criminals, vagabonds, orphans, and gamblers. Most of them arrived at the Hanover railway station. This gave Fritz Harmon a green light to target young males that he would pick up at the train station and redirect the police's attention from his illegal activities. Police used him to agree to fence stolen property and keep it at his home. Then the police would raid his room, and to avoid suspicion, he would be arrested as well. He was also known to perform citizen's arrest upon commuters for traveling with forged documents. In other words, he was a snitch. Due to his usefulness, he was allowed to patrol Hanover Station without any interference. THE VICTIMS Though there were many alleged victims, Harman's first known victim was Friedel Roth, a 17-year-old runaway. He was last seen with Harman on September 25, 1918. His family reported his disappearance to the police, who in turn raided Fritz's apartment, where they found him with a partially nude 13-year-old boy. He served a nine-month prison sentence when he was convicted of sexual assault and battery of a minor. Years later, during his trial, he said police failed to find Roth's head, which was wrapped in newspaper and stowed behind his stove. In October 1919, he met another runaway named Hans Granz. He'd been sleeping around the train station for two weeks and made money to eat by selling clothes. Granz eventually would stand trial himself, and he told the court's that though he was heterosexual, he was so desperate for money that he made contact with Harman in order to prostitute himself. Harman's reputation as a homosexual was well known. Harman didn't kill Grants and moved him into his apartment, making him his lover and his accomplice. That had a tempestuous relationship and Grants would be kicked out and then plead to be taken back. Harman said he was aware the young man, who was 20 years his junior, manipulated him, but he craved his companionship and later said, I had to have someone I meant everything to. Despite serving another nine-month stint in prison in 1920 for sexual assault, police still used him as an informant. In July 1921, the pair moved to a room inside an old house by the Lein River, which was located in the haunted area of Hanover. Harman continued to cruise for victims at the Hanover Central Railway Station, which consisted of young male commuters, prostitutes, and runaways. The poverty experienced in Germany post-World War I brought high numbers of young men to the railway station, some who had run away from home or were seeking ways to make money. On February 12, 1923, he claimed a second victim, Fritz Frank was a 17 year old he invited back to his apartment. Hans Granz waited there with two women, one who was Granz's lover. Eventually they left, and when they returned the following day, Frank was gone, and Harmon said that he had traveled to Hamburg. During the trial, Granz said he returned alone, unannounced, at the apartment and found Frank's nude body on the bed, and he turned to Harmon and asked, When shall I come back again? Another 17-year-old, Wilhelm Schultz, crossed paths with Harmon at the station. His remains were never found, but upon Harmon's arrest a year later, Elizabeth Engel, the landlady, had the boy's clothing. While he lived there, he claimed two more victims. In June 1923, he moved to the attic apartment at Two Rote Rye. The 13-year-old son of his neighbor disappeared while running an errand for his father. Later, his school cap and braces would be found in Harmon's room. Harmon picked up the pace of killing boys, most of who disappeared without a trace. The only clue to their whereabouts came when their belongings or clothes were found in Harmon's property. He continued his killing spree into 1924, claiming boys at least once every other week. In some cases, it was found that Fritz Harmon had a prior relationship with some of his victims, and in some instances, Talked family members or acquaintances out of issuing a missing persons report. In May 1924, the butcher of Hanover claimed his youngest one, Frederick Abling, 10, who disappeared when he was truant from school. The last victim's dismembered body was found in a lake near the entrance to Herrenhausen Gardens. Harmon complained that it had taken four trips to carry the dismembered remains of 17 year old. Eric De Vries. The Methodology Once a victim was lured back to his room, Harmon would give them food and drink. Then he would bite into their Adam's apple while strangling them. In some instances he bit through to the trachea. He called this his love bite. They would be sodomized sometimes when alive, other times after death. The bodies would be dismembered and the majority were disposed of in the lean river. Afterward, Hands Granz would help him sell the victim's belongings through the black market. Harmon not only traded clothing but meat as well, and during the trial there were accusations some of the meat he sold belonged to the boys he'd killed, and not pork or horse meat as he claimed. Before his arrest, Harmon would tell his customers he obtained the meat from a butcher named Carl. After his arrest, police searched Harmon's room, which were stained with blood everywhere. Walls, the floor and especially the camp bed where he murdered his victims bore evidence that something sinister had occurred within the walls. Fritz dismissed this as part of his contraband meat business. Past and present neighbors were questioned by police who commented on the number of boys that visited him, and later he would be seen leaving with sacks or baskets in the late evening or early in the morning. During the trial, the evidence recovered at Harman's apartments were displayed at the police station, where the parents of missing boys came from across Germany to inspect them. Inevitably, many of the items were identified by family members. Harman said that many of these items came into his possession through his trade of used clothing, or that his young lovers would leave them behind. On June 29, boots, clothing, and keys were identified as belonging to Robert Witzel, 18 years old. His skull had been recovered the month before in the garden, but remained unidentified until his father examined it. Witzel's family had been urging police to investigate their son's disappearance since April 26. He said the irregular jawbone corresponded to the look of his son's face. Robert had last been seen in the company of his best friend, the sly and girlish Fritz Kalmeyer, when they attended a traveling circus. Harmon insisted that, that it was a police official from the railway station who took the unlucky Robert to the circus. Witzel lied to his family since he'd been sexually abused by Harmon who procured him for society gentlemen who preferred young men in their beds. Harmon's reversal of fortune came when a couple arrived at the police station and walked by the Witzel family. Robert's mother immediately recognized the jacket the man wore, He said Harmon had sold it to him along with some trousers. There was an identification card in them with the name Witzel. The woman accompanying the man was Frau Engel, Harmon's landlady, who had come to the police station to inquire about her tenant's military pension. The killer insisted on his innocence concerning Witzel's disappearance, but finally admitted to the murder. He broke down and had to be supported by his sister, who urged them to make a full confession to his heinous deeds. Accompanied by Hanover police, Harmon took them throughout the city, indicating where parts of corpses could be found in a lake behind a bush, or concealed in different hidden places. More citizens stepped forward to say they had obtained meat and or clothing from Harmon or Grants. Disposal of the Human Remains Harmon said he never planned to murder any of the boys, but was overcome by a rabid sexual passion. That was stronger than the horror of cutting up and chopping the dead body, which would take up to two days to get rid of. An unknown victim did escape but failed to report the incident to police. Harmon said he found the act of getting rid of the boy's corpses very distasteful and that after his first murder he'd been ill for over a week. He would start the process by pouring himself a cup of strong black coffee. He would put a covering on the floor, then place the body on it, covering the face of the victim with a cloth. First, he would remove the intestines and place them inside a bucket. Afterward, he would soak the pooling blood inside the abdominal cavity with towels. Three cuts would be made between the ribs and shoulders. Then he would take hold of the ribs and push until the bones around the shoulders broke. The kidneys, lungs, and heart would be diced and placed inside the bucket with the intestines. Then he would proceed to sever the arms and legs. The limbs and torso would be flayed of skin. He would flush the extra flesh in the toilet or dispose of them in the river. The last to be severed would be the victim's head. First he would flay the flesh from the skull, then he would wrap it in a cloth and hit it with an axe until the skull splintered where he could remove the brain. He would deposit it into a bucket along with other remnants of the corpse. Harmon insisted the killing of the young men were only done on the spur of the moment but evidence emerged that he premeditated days and hours in advance. He would only admit to murders where he was presented with evidence against him. He said to police, There are some you don't know about, but it's not those you think. He claimed that he killed between 50 to 70 victims. However, they could only connect him to 27 murders. On July 8th, Hans Granz, his lover, was arrested as an accessory to murder since Harmon insisted he'd kill certain victims upon the insistence.
0: Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.
1: Of his lover. August 16, 1924. Doctors at the Göttingen Medical School examined Harman and assessed he was competent to stand trial. The trial. The story of Fritz Harmon took place in Germany, but his deeds were so atrocious that American newspapers carried the stories on their pages. The news trumpeted that the investigation into the wholesale murder by Fritz Harman, dubbed the human vampire, promised to unearth scandals that involved the highest social circles and the aristocracy of Hanover. There were rumors of orgies with a younger set. One of the stories involved the suicide of a young attorney connected to the state prosecutor's office who was known to be an intimate of Harmon. There were protests in Hanover which accused the police of neglected incompetence. This spurred the Prussian Ministry of the Interior to dig into the crime itself as well as investigating the investigators. There were reports of Harmon fainting during the grilling by the police as they continued to dig up details from his reluctant memory. He told him he would prowl around the streets for the purpose of luring boys with girlish faces to his room with a promise of tea cakes and that he had a 14-year-old daughter for them to play with. These were all lies. As a pimp, he procured boys for his fashionable acquaintances by giving them wine, then taking them to the opera. He then promised to take them to a party at a luxurious apartment. Investigators believed that it was from these circles that he acquired the money that enabled him to live in comfort and dress well, which deceived everyone. This circle also assured the friendly neutrality of the police, which fraternized with him and were present during drinking bouts. Mysteriously, but not unexpected, the later news reports about the crimes of Harmon failed to include any further reference to the elites of Hanover having any connection to him. Like many psychopaths, he enjoyed the notoriety he created with the discovery of his crimes. He said, No emperor, no king, never was paid so much attention. Isn't that so? Is it true that my name has gone all over the world and that people everywhere are talking about me? At this point, Harmon was charged with killing at least 30 young men, ages 12 to 25. 21 were already proved against him. Half of these he'd confessed to. A reporter who interviewed him described where the only thing that mattered to Harmon was his place in the limelight and he felt he'd done something no other human being in the world had done before. He speculated on what the scientists would find when they examined his brain after his execution. He did not want to live, and two large guards accompanied him at all times to make it impossible for him to commit suicide, and an iron bar had been placed rigidly beneath his chin. During the interview, his blue eyes gleamed when he reiterated that his crimes were unique. Harmon asked an American reporter, There has never been anything like it in America, has there? You had the Franks murder. Yes, I read about it. But that is nothing like what I have done, is it? The reporter observed that no matter how rational this murderer was when he committed his crime and his calculating nature to cover the deed, he was not normal now. He enacted the last minutes of his victim struggling in his grasp. He showed in graphic detail with hands, arms, teeth, and fingernails. How he put them to death, Harmon described that during those years he killed the young men. He was also a stool pigeon for the Hanover police. It wasn't until June 21st, when a young man refused to allow him to the attic, where he committed his crimes, that led to his capture. During those days, he was being questioned by the police. He would tell them, "Take me to my mother's grave, and I'll confess all." They complied, but he broke down completely and they weren't able to get anything from him, supposedly seeing a mother of one of his victims sobbing on bended knees, asking to know the fate of her son that prompted his first confession. This was after two weeks of police strong-arming him to gain a confession. His sister also urged them to confess fully. A cloud of collusion, graft, and incompetence hung over the police during these days, and realizing that they had best produce information from Harmon. They changed their tactics to give him coffee and have one of their officers talk to him like a Dutch uncle while offering him an imported cigar. In another cell, they were holding Hans Granz. Harmon's accomplice was acted as his procurer in luring youths to the lair where they were slaughtered. His payment was getting the clothes of the victims. The police were perplexed how none of the neighbors staying in Harman's house never heard the slightest noise also why the landlady never suspected anything was going on when she often saw youths go to Harmon's room, but never leave. Moreover, he boiled the bones of his victims in her kitchen pots, which he claimed was pork. Afterwards, he would collect the fat and pour it into bottles. He sold brawn or mince to other neighbors. Only a few months before his arrest in April 1924, the landlady and her family became ill after eating sausages, that Harman said were sheep's intestines. In other parts of Germany, several disappearances were being traced to Harman's home. Eight officials were fired due to allegations they were involved in orgies orchestrated by Harman. Many of the victims were said to be floaters who were grateful for a night's lodging or a drink of liquor. December 1924. The human vampire went on trial for the murder of 27 persons. He testified that he kept a boy prisoner for two weeks, gloating over him before he butchered him. He told the judge, Please hurry my trial. I'd rather be beheaded than sent to an insane asylum. I'm perfectly sane, too. In his retelling of the boy's murder, he said he didn't know what to do with the head, so he hid it between a stove and a box of cucumbers. He said the police went through his apartment and failed to find the skull. When his story became so revolting, spectators were asked to leave the courtroom. Harmon was sure he would face the executioner. He told a reporter before going into the courtroom, I know the whole world is watching me. You needn't think I'll break down in the courtroom. No, I'll cut a very dignified figure. I will tell just what happened. I know I did wrong and that I must die for it, but I swear at the moment I did the actual killings, I didn't know what I was doing. Hours before the case was called the street in front of the old courthouse, was filled with spectators, since only a limited amount were allowed inside. The chamber only held two hundred persons. It was hard to believe that the middle-aged man with a coarse body and moon face, who demonstrated feminine gestures like wiggling his bottom and constantly licking his lips, was capable of such horrific acts. Several well-known criminal lawyers were initially interested in the case, but soon found out there was no money in it, and none wished to handle it for the glory. Harmon's method of killing involved tearing the throats of the young men with his teeth, quartering the bodies, and then throwing them into the river that flowed past his attic lair. It was this description that had many of those that attended the trial leave never to return. During the court proceedings, Authorities proffered bundles of clothes which Harmon sniffed to help the prosecutor identify the belongings of 27 boys that he was accused of mutilating. The testimony became so intense, the judge finally ordered all unofficial listeners to leave the court. Earlier in the day, Harmon asked the judge to exclude all women. He said he felt ashamed to describe the horrible details of his deeds. The judge refused, and the women who wished remained. Viewing different photographs, Harmon failed to identify many of his victims. He admitted most of them were strangers to him, but that if any clothes were found in his room, they most likely belonged to someone who had been murdered there. A few times he denied certain crimes. He would sniff some garments, scrutinize the pants, coats, underwear and socks, and then admit or deny the crime. Bleached bones and skulls recovered from the muddy river were brought into court. There were 285 exhibits which belonged to Harmon's victims. He fidgeted when they were held before him and said, I smashed in their skulls and sawed their bodies to pieces after biting their throats. There was only one I threw in the river hole. When the neighbors were questioned, they said that by day he posed as a good Samaritan and unknown to them at night he would nod his victims' throats. Harmon accused Hugo Wikowski and Hans Granz of selecting victims for him. He said they would purposely choose well-dressed victims so they could sell the clothing afterwards. As the trial proceeded, extra police were on duty due to the slew of threatening letters received. There was fear relative of one of the victims would retaliate against Harmon or Granz. One hundred and ninety witnesses were scheduled to testify. The horror of Harmon's deeds were not yet fully known. However, it came to light when his landlady, The star witness for the prosecution, Frau Rengel, testified that Harmon sold her as much as 35 pounds of meat weekly. She said it was always the same size, always lean pieces. She also purchased clothes from him at the cheapest prices. She described that Harmon would come into her kitchen and ask her to put water to boil. He would return with a pot containing meat cut into cubes, which he poured in the big pot for cooking. He also made sausages. She said the meats tasted good. Frau Engel complained that there was public feeling against her and that one of the victims' mother cried at her, You murderess, you ate my boy. Police admitted the landlady was an enigma. She'd been watched by detectives to verify if she knew of the murders. During the year, Harmon was her tenant. She'd worked as a scrubwoman at the police station. The home she lived in was over 200 years old, but she claimed she had never seen bloodstains in his room, or noticed anything suspicious. She didn't know that she'd never had problems with rats. However, after Harmon moved in, she was over with them. During the trial, two women friends of Granz testified how they saw what appeared to be a human mouth boiling in a soup kettle in Harmon's kitchen. They took their find to the police, who dismissed it, and said it was just a pig's snout. Throughout the trial, instances where the police dismissed or failed to follow up on complaints by neighbors regarding Harmon's strange behavior came up, causing public outrage because many believed if they would have heeded these people, the murderer could have been stopped sooner. A young man, who testified as a witness, said that Grounds had tried to lure him to the attic, but he became suspicious and refused. He described that Harmon hypnotized him as to make him feel his arms had become amputated. Annoyed, Harmon shouted, Grounds knew my taste, and I'm sure he would not have brought this youth to me. I never took a youth over twenty, and this one is at least twenty-four. A woman living in the room below Harmon said his hacking crumbled her ceiling. Richard Graf, eighteen, disappeared October 1923, a few months before his mother, Mrs. Drandorf, remarried and sailed for America. She moved to Port Richmond and Staten Island, and suddenly letters from her son stopped arriving. She contacted her other son, Otto, asking about Richard. He knew nothing until one day he saw Barbara wearing his brother's suit, the same one he was wearing when he disappeared. The barber said he'd bought it from a second-hand store. Otto kept tracing where it originally came from and then learned it was sold by Hans Granz, who denied any knowledge of Richard Graf. It was only when Granz was held as an accomplice that the fate of his brother became evident. A few days before Christmas, 1924, Harmon and Granz were convicted and sentenced to death. Harmon proclaimed to the courts upon hearing his sentence, I accept the verdict fully and freely. I shall go to the decapitating block joyfully and happily. In contrast, Granz became hysterical and collapsed when he heard he would be executed for the murder of Adolf Hannipel, as well for being an accessory to murder in the case of Fritz Wittig, which earned him an additional 12 years' imprisonment. Grant's conviction was assured when Harmon, during the trial, pointed at him and said that he'd committed two murders upon his lover's insistence. Police found the note dated the day of Wittig's disappearance signed by Harmon and Grant's in which Harmon would be paid 20 gold marks for the young man's suit. Harmon did not appeal the sentence and admitted that should he be set free, he would likely kill again. Grant's appeal was denied on February 6, 1925. A few days later, Harmon wrote a letter to Grant's father, which was delivered to the defense attorney. In it, he maintained that his accomplice was guiltless. He'd been motivated by feelings that Grant's only used him as a meal ticket. According to the newspapers, with his usual cunning, the human butcher of boys outwitted the police, by secretly writing and dropping a long letter, which retracted all the charges against Granz. Harmon wrote, The police forced me, by blows and terrible mistreatment, to drag in Granz. Thus I was forced to make false charges from fear. I lied just to get rest from the police. The police told me Granz was telling on me, and that I might as well tell on him. They were determined to convict us both. The more I lied about Granz the more decent the police treatment of me became. I solemnly swear that Granz did not know anything, whatever, of my past life. He did not know I murdered. He never saw anything I call having to witness that Granz was innocently condemned. This letter resulted in Granz getting a second trial in January 1926. On January 19th, he was found guilty of aiding and abetting Harmon but instead of death, he was sentenced to serve 24 years. After serving 12 years, he was entered as Sachsenhausen concentration camp. At the end of World War II, he returned to Harnovo until his death in 1975. The Execution German tradition dictated that prisoners would not be told of their execution until the day before it would be carried out. On April 14, 1925, harman received the news that he had only hours left of life his last wish was to drink brazilian coffee and smoke an expensive cigar ironically he prayed with his pastor at sunrise on april 15 1925 fritz harman was executed with a guillotine in a secluded area on the grounds of hanover prison the press was not admitted to the execution but reports leaked from twelve citizens allowed as witnesses that he walked to the guillotine, pale and nervous, and his last words were, I am guilty, gentlemen, but hard though it may be, I want to die as a man. Before the blade fell, he added, I repent, but I do not fear death. There were three murders that Harmon was acquitted of, despite circumstantial evidence which pointed to him as the guilty party. One was Herman Wolfe, who was seen conversing with Harmon, Clothing and a distinctive belt buckle were found in the possession of the landlady downstairs. The murderer denied the charge, declaring that the youth was too ugly to have interested him. Only when Wolf's father made threats against him during the course of the trial did he admit he knew Harmon. For the death of Adolf Hennies, neither Harmon nor Granz were convicted due to conflicting testimony. In the case of Herman Bach, Several friends testified that Harman persisted in talking them out of filing a missing persons report, claiming he would speak to the police himself. Like the others, possession of Bach's were found in Harman's attic room. Bach was heterosexual and Harman had known him for several years before his disappearance. Suspected Murders There were murder victims believed to have met their end at the hands of Fritz Harman. September 1918. Herman Koch, 14, disappeared. He was known to have kept company with Harmon, who once wrote a letter to Koch's school to explain his extended absence. Police suspected him, but after searching his room, they found no evidence to use against him. In 1921, Koch's father petitioned the authorities to try Harmon for his son's murder, but he was rejected. Hans Kimes, Seventeen was reported missing March 1922. He was found nude and bound in a canal two months after his disappearance. The autopsy indicated he died by strangulation. However, a distinctive handkerchief with Granz's name was found lodged in his throat. Before the discovery of the youth's corpse, Harman visited his parents, offering to locate their son. Afterwards, he told police he believed Granz had killed Hans Kimes. The accusation fell flat, since his lover was in police custody at the time of the boy's disappearance. Harmon's motivation for accusing Granz was two weeks prior to the Kimes murder. He'd been released from a six-month stint in a labor camp. When he arrived to his apartment, he found that Granz had stolen the majority of his personal property and forged his signature to obtain and spend his military pension. They argued violently, and Granz was kicked out. He returned with Hugo Wikowski a criminal acquaintance where they ransacked the room of the little that was left to Harmon. Both cases of those murders remained officially unsolved. Once executed, Harmon's head was sawed off. There was forensic analysis of his brain which revealed traces of meningitis. His brain was not preserved. However, his head was kept in formaldehyde and remained the property of the Guttenden Medical School from 1925 to 2014 when it was cremated. The recovered remains of Harmon's victims were buried in a communal grave in Stockner Cemetery in February 1925. Three years later, a memorial was erected with the name and ages of the victims. Hot on the heels of Harmon's conviction, in Mustenburg, a town in Silesia, Carl Denk, keeper of a small rooming house, attempted to murder a laborer he lured to his property. The police arrested him and then went through his home. Inside an adjacent barn, they found pots with pickled meats. A doctor confirmed that they were human flesh. The authorities also found identification papers of different laborers who'd been reported missing. The neighbors told police he'd been living for months on the pickled meats. The gruesome discovery and the fact that Carl Denke had somehow Become a murderer and cannibal was explained that he lost his fortune as a result of the inflation of the mark in Germany. The man ended up hanging himself in jail. He became known as the Silesian Cannibal. Other horrific murders would always be linked to Harman's crimes. In 1926, there had been a series of young girls murdered in northern Hungary and eastern Czechoslovakia. In all cases, there were marks of teeth on the throats of the victims. In June 1926, a laborer named Lakovich was arrested by the Panchevo Police Department. This was the sister city of Belgrade, situated across the Danube. The man had lured two girls, aged 9 and 11, to an island in the river where he attacked them and then threw them into the Danube where they drowned. The father of three was saved from a mob by a large amount of police. Before this, the young daughter of a railroad inspector of Tarjan, was found murdered in a ditch. The autopsy confirmed she'd been raped and stabbed to death. She was last seen with an elderly man. The identity and number of all of Harmon's victims will never be known. Throughout his incarceration, he made contradictory statements about how many he killed. Once he said maybe 30, maybe 40, later changing it to between 50 and 70 aftermath. 1931, Fritz Lang directed the film M based on Harmon's character. Peter Lohr starred in the movie as Hans Beckert, a killer of children.